Hey everyone, welcome back to Listen For Real. I'm Jennifer Brown and I am very excited to talk about all things racial equity today. And this is really an important day because I have Tammy Green and Judith Sanders with me from the Equity and Wellness Institute But there are no accidents in this world. And yesterday we um, experienced a a terrible loss of life in Buffalo, New York, as a result of a shooting. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today, because to not talk about it would be part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're pivoting a little bit and adding this um, very much into the conversation And I want to let people know that's what we're going to cover because if that's a bit of a trigger warning that you need and you need to practice some exquisite self-care around this and not stay with us for this conversation today, I honor that and I ask you to do that for yourself. But if you do stay with us, I just want you to picture that we are all friends here. This is the vibe of my podcast. It is not an interview so much as a important conversation that is very candid among friends. So for all of you listening, you're here with us and we are so glad you are. I, I always pull up the proverbial couch and chair and say, come, I pat this, the, the cushion beside me and go sit down. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's, let's talk through this and about this. And so thank you both, Judah and Tamu, for being here. I'm really grateful. How are you both? Let's just let's just check in. And I want to get a sense of how you are. And I I appreciate as I asked that, that this morning, um, in light of what happened in the news, I sent you both an email and I said, hey, if you guys have to focus your time, your emotions, your energy elsewhere today, given all that's gone on in the last 24 hours. I completely respect that. And we can reschedule. Mm -hmm. And neither of you wanted to do that. And you said, that's exactly why we're doing this work. And in fact, Tamu, you gave me permission. You said something in your email, and I really want to say how much I appreciate this. You said, This morning, I saw the headline and just wanted to hide from it. Um, That's what I said. And then you said, Buffalo is another crushing reminder of why I get up and do this work every single day. I do my best to take excellent care of myself so that I can. There are times when the news of the day is unbearable and I need to retreat, but today is not one of them perhaps in part because I have almost entirely weaned myself off of the news so that I can show up and do the work. So first of all, thank you for showing up and doing the work. Thank you for showing me what that looks like Mm -hmm. and the rest of us. Um, So thank you. I, I, I just, will you share briefly a little bit about you, Tamu, I'll have you go first, Tamu, and then say kind of what the Institute does as well, because it's completely pertinent to everything going on right now. Yeah, absolutely, Jen. Thank you for having me and my colleague Judah on the show today. Um, We really welcome this conversation. So, and I just want to say first and foremost, 
Thank you for asking about us earlier today and whether we were okay with doing the show. Um, as I mentioned, there are days when uh, what's happening is too much, and I do need to give myself some space and to retreat from the work and go drive to the water or take my dog for a walk or whatever it is that I need to do. Yeah. Um, the reality, unfortunately, is that the structural violence against Black people and other people of color is so pervasive that whether we're getting it in a mass shooting and hearing about it on the 24-hour news cycle or not, it is always happening. Yeah. It is always there. Um, and so we do have to find ways to take care of ourselves just to be survivors, whether we're doing this work or not in equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, and so I really practice very strong self-care. Uh, I try to have good boundaries. Uh, I, um, I make sure that the people that I surround myself with are loving, wonderful people. Uh, and that I think allows me to come to work every day and tackle these kinds of issues head on. Uh, and so that's how I am today. I'm feeling in that space, actually gratitude to be able to do this work because I know that I've heard you and other people say that there is a feeling of like wringing your hands and frustration that you, you wish that there was something that you could do. Well, I want to say, of course, for you, having this podcast is an amazing contribution to the world um, and being able to do something. Um, and yeah, for myself to be able to come to the Institute every day and to engage with communities all over the country uh, and institutions, organizations that are saying, we think we can do better. We're not quite sure. Uh, we need some help. Can you help us? That's a beautiful thing. You know, Judah and I started our day to day with a couple of interviews with a new client um, we won't mention names, um, but a pretty significant client that does a lot of really impactful work. And um, and so to be able to speak with individuals from their board of directors to say, how well do you really think you're doing in the space of equity, diversity, inclusion? Um, and where do you want to be a year from now? What do you want when you look out into your future a few years from now? What would you like to be different and helping to put those pieces together for them is really an honor, right? So we do that through the Equity and Wellness Institute um, by facilitating really emotionally charged conversations that folks need to have, but are afraid to have. Um, we do that by looking at resources. What kind of resources do you have and how could those be distributed differently? Are, how are you investing the funds that you have? How are you looking at your procurement practices? Um, how are you setting the bar for others in the industry? Uh, we look at what their workplace practices are, what 
is what's their hiring like and their onboarding and their mentoring of people of color and other you know groups that are facing inequities uh, within their industry and you know what um, kind of lengths are they willing to go to ensure that folks are really coming up and being able to rise up within their organization or their industry? You know, so these are the kinds of things that we do um, within the Equity and Wellness Institute, recognizing that a lot of people are grappling with with how to do this. You know, like they they have the interest and the desire and the good intention, but they're like. We need tools. We need to be able to assess what we're doing. We need to be able to, you know, make decisions and um, and know that we're on track with our outcomes. And so we we need a partner in doing this work. Uh, and essentially, that's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah, Judah. I, I would love you to just say hello and and tell us how you came into this work. I'm going to have Tammy do the same thing, but. There comes a, a, there's, I'm such a story lover Mm -hmm. and there's always a story behind this. Like Tamu, I know you have a story of your mom. (laughs) I remember that. And, and there's, there's stories that lead to where we're at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I would love to hear yours. I, I, the audience has heard mine. So Judah, tell us a little bit of the story of you and how this how this evolved. Yeah, well, thanks again for, for having us. And, and again, I just want to echo um, how meaningful it was that you checked in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's huge and, and huge for me because on the one hand, I think right now a, a lot of us are holding the grief of what happened in Buffalo. I was sharing one of my cousins um, is, is one of the victims. Um, so there's the grief um, but what I'm grateful for is that I also simultaneously get to hold gratitude that there are people uh, in the world who who do understand that, who will check in with us, who are doing the work. I'm grateful that as a part of the Equity and Wellness Institute, that I get to look at all of the clients that we've worked with in the past and those successful outcomes of moving those organizations and individuals into being more equitable um, in their way of being and also get to look at the clients that we're working with right now and knowing that in a year from now, those uh, people and organizations will be more equitable. And so I get to hold this this hope as I'm holding this grief, um, Mm. which for me uh, makes it survivable um, and helps me not to feel as hopeless because I'm, we're not hopeless. Uh, there's actually a, a pathway forward and many of us are on it. And as we're on it, we're going to be grabbing folks and bringing them with us. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I started uh, doing this work uh, because I got a job uh, in a space where I was concerned about how much equity would exist. Um, it was a predominantly white space, uh, a space where um, patriarchy exists, um, where biases exist. And so I came to Temu. I've known Temu for many, many years, and I knew that she was doing this kind of work. And I said, teach me. <laughs> how, do, how do I help and bring value in, in, the, um, in the area of equity in this space? Um, and so I, I started learning. Uh, I started, you know, kind of getting roped into resources and reading and Tamu was sending me stuff and teaching us stuff. And um, and then I realized uh, mostly because uh, 
Dr. Temu told me uh, that I, I could help uh, in a real way. And those opportunities started coming and started building kind of the skill set uh, of that and learned that I really love the work uh, and that it is critical that I participate. Um, I, and I think that what I hope is that everybody at some point realizes that it is critical for them to participate within their sphere of influence, using their giftings and their uniqueness and their participation doesn't have to look like mine, but they do have to participate. And so that's why I'm here. I I love that because, you know, it's not obvious how we're all called to participate in change Mm -hmm. and how we're all called into activism or how we're called into um, making a shift. And it does look different for everybody. And I think we make a lot of assumptions. Like, I think it would be easy to go, well, define the terms first. I really think it's important. I want to back up. Yeah. Let's talk about equity for a minute. That Let's word equity, it. because I think a lot of people hear DEI, they hear yeah. these terms and then they just kind of go like deer in the headlights. <laughs> What's that look like? What's that mean? <laughs> I know I'm supposed to be clued in. I am, you know what I'm saying? And they become like catchphrases. Exactly. And then it's just a cool thing to sound like you're, you're woke and (laughs) you, you know what this means. And so, so the first thing that I already want to ask is, and thank you. And, and let me draw it back to you. When you said it was kind of me to send you the email this morning, I thought, I, I I even thought as I was sending it, is this a me othering somebody like mm-hmm. already? Is this me being human and compassionate? Um, because that's my first instinct, thank God. And I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I stopped for a minute and I went, wait, is this othering? Like this is a, a universal problem because humans were killed. But no, it is also a, an issue yeah. of white supremacy and race in this country. And right. so I want to be really careful. And let me let me couch this with one other thought that came to my mind is how quickly we grow mm-hmm. numb to the word another. And I was reading Chanel Miller's memoir last night and Chanel Miller um, is um, the sexual assault survivor of the Stanford case a number of years ago. It was very, very um, well known around, around here. And her memoir, she talked about another, the word another, and that we get numb to, it was another sexual assault, or in her case, Uh, it was uh, another death by train, as they called it. She went to a very competitive high school in Palo Alto where um, students, it became a regular thing that a, a, a child would walk in front of a train and take their life. And she said, and it got to be normal that there was another child who died today. There was another sexual assault today. There was another mass shooting yesterday. So all of that is swirling in my head. So now I've just dealt that up, but I feel like that's the kind of conversation I just want to out it and go, I feel so clueless. And I think um, plenty of us White folks are not. I, I think a lot of us just feel clueless and impotent. 
And so now what does equity work mean? What does equity really mean outside of a catchphrase? And, and yeah. why does it matter? Like, I know why it matters to me, but why does it matter? I'm glad that you talked about another. I'm not familiar with this book, but I mm. definitely get the sentiment behind what you were saying. Um, and I'm glad that you talked about that. It kind of goes back to some of what I was saying at the beginning, that this violence is happening in so many different ways every moment of every day. So we can turn our attention to it, maybe when the news draws our attention to it, because it's happened in a particular way, but it's happening all of the time. And the real work about equity is recognizing that and not getting, I want to say not getting caught up in the individual instances, we need to grieve the individual instances because they are human life. They are human tragedy and suffering. But what I'm talking about is not just focusing on what the news is bringing to us as those individual instances. So we need to kind of back up and look at what's propelling those instances that the news is bringing to us. And that's the real work of equity and going a step further justice. So these terms that we talk about, diversity is really just about um, uh, having difference. That's really what diversity is, right? So you could have uh, a school, for example, a school environment um, where the students are from a lot of different backgrounds. And so you could have a diverse school in that sense. If you are talking about inclusion, it's more about how is it that the folks in that environment are being able to bring their gifts forward, their thoughts, their perspectives, their unique skill sets, their cultures, and to be honored and valued and appreciated for everything that they are bringing into that space, right? And that all of that that they are is creating that space and allowing that space to flourish, right? So you could have a school that is very diverse, but is not inclusive. Yes. Right? And then... When we think about equity, equity for sure goes a step further because with equity, what we're looking at is essentially your personal demographics not predicting your life outcomes, right? So if you are gay or you are straight, you can anticipate that you are going to have the same kind of opportunity when it comes to education, when it comes to the work that you do, when it comes to the income that you're able to bring in, when it comes to the safety that you and your partner experience on the street, right? And the same thing about your race, that your race is not going to be predictive of your life outcomes, of the kind of health care that you receive, 
of how long you live, right? Whether or not you're going to be killed by the police, that your race doesn't predict that. So that's what we're talking about with equity. So it's not, it's not evening the playing field. It's that the playing field didn't need evening in the first place. Is that a way to look at that? Interesting that the playing field didn't need evening in the first place. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it that way. That's deep. Go ahead, Judah. I, I think I think if if we take that analogy, a part of it is about really assessing the playing field. Right. What's happening on the playing field? It's a big playing field. What's happening on this part of it? Um, and does does the playing field allow all of us uh, to have the opportunity to play? at the same level if we want. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, I think that that may mean in certain parts of the playing field, evening it. I think it may mean acknowledging that some people don't want to play, right? (laughs) I think it's it's really about an an assessment of what's happening. um, And to Tamu's point, um, to get to a point where uh, it it does not predict your outcome, Right. right? Yeah, and even this analogy of the playing field, I remember my mother, I'll go back and talk about my mom in a second because you asked about my journey. But my mother talking about being in a space, um, she is a social entrepreneur and an Ashoka fellow. And so she is able to run with the big dogs (laughs) globally. Uh, And so she was in a space, uh, I want to say in Switzerland a few years back and was, you know, seated at a table uh, with folks that were invited to be a part of this event where essentially people that had a lot of money were being introduced to folks who were doing really wonderful work on the ground, uh, with my mom being one of them. And they were talking about football teams. And um, my mom was like, yeah, I like this particular football team. And someone else at the table was like, um, yeah, I purchased that team or, you know, so it's like a whole other way of, do you play on the field or do you purchase the field and the, and the whole team? Right. And so that's part of what we're looking at with justice, you know, that we have to take that really big picture into account around, we have resources that have been robbed, stolen off the backs of a large number of people because of their demographics, right? Because of their homeland, because of their quote unquote race, which we know is a social construct, um, because of their, uh, their native tongue, because of their immigration status, because of their sexual orientation, uh, because of their gender and gender identity. and. So when we're talking about justice, we really have to look at how we have our resources distributed um, because that impacts so much of um, our ability to to live our lives um, with agency, right? As opposed to being beholden to how someone else would have have us live our lives. Yeah. Judah, you want to add to that? Give me your perspective on that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's about um, looking at the ways that um, 
who people are and how they show up in the world uh, impacts, uh, like Tema was saying, what they have access to um, and and the life that they can live, right? And then about um, kind of addressing those things, right? And so one, I think it's about acknowledging that um, that difference has an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we look at uh, systems and infrastructure and programming and resource allocation that we have to take those things into consideration because if we don't um, then we try to set we have those systems that only work for some groups of people right some demographics mm-hmm. um, and so I think building equity is a, is really um it's this it I think it's hard because it's the big picture right? And but then also it's about bringing it to the the, the smallest thing, right? Uh, if uh, yeah. I was talking to somebody recently and they were really frustrated about um, uh, a post that somebody posted that showed different ways that um, being on the spectrum can show up, and they were saying, "Oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't need to label our kids, and we don't need to." And I thought as I was watching kind of that dialogue that that something as simple as having language mm-hmm. for what you're experiencing um, makes all the difference in uh, somebody who is on the spectrum having an equitable experience or not. Because I know I used to work as a behavior therapist with um, young people on the spectrum and so many of them spent so much time being labeled as, you know, problem kids, kids with behavioral issues, getting suspended. Uh, when if there had been, if they had had language, if they themselves and if the folks around them and the folks who were in power, their teachers and the principal, et cetera, if those people had had, had, had language for for what those young people were experiencing, right. um, they might not have been suspended, expelled, sent to continuation schools. And what we know is that continuation schools can be a pipeline um, to having a really negative experience in the justice system, right? So, sure. so I think it's really about looking at um, how, what are the ways that we are different and how do we need to adjust uh, the world we live in um, to make sure that everybody uh, can build a life of dignity that, that they want to live. I love that you said that, Judah, um, because that is one of these key fundamental differences between equity and equality. Right. Right. So when people talk about equality, generally they're talking about sameness. So, you know, it's like you get treated exactly the same or you get exactly the same resources or whatever that may be. And sometimes that makes sense to do, but because most of us need something different to be treated with sameness um, only exacerbates the problem if that were actually even happening, right? So like if the three of us were to go to uh, our doctor today and the doctor were to do the exact same thing for all three of us and prescribe the same exact thing for the three of us or whatnot, that would be a problem, right? Because we would likely be there for different reasons. Uh, And so we wouldn't want that kind of sameness. And we get that even with things like tax structures, you know, when you have uh, a set tax on everybody, but people are making a wide range of incomes, 
that set tax is going to hurt people who are making less a lot more than it's going to hurt people who are making more, right? So that equality, that sameness can unfortunately sometimes be a curse. Whereas with equity, it's what you were talking about, Judah, where you look at what's the circumstance of this individual or of this community, of this demographic, and what is it that's going to best serve them, right? And let's make sure that that's what we're working towards. So it takes being able to do assessment. You know, it takes being really inquisitive, um, being curious in the right kind of way. Uh, and then being able to respond appropriately to what it is that's being uncovered. You know what occurs to me as we talk? So we've had big picture here. And then Judah said, so I'm dovetailing back to what Judah said and complimenting what you just (laughs) illustrated. Looking at a big picture, but bringing it down to this granular, the smallest possible level, and then having language around that. What strikes me is that story. That is hearing people's lived experience and their story. Correct. And that that's creating the why. That's creating the, the understanding of why all of this is important. Every bit of this first 28 minutes we've just talked about is really about the most granular story mm-hmm. of an individual experience something, don't you think? And so Absolutely. that's where, because that's the language. I mean, if you think about it, stories are collective language. That's how right. we understand one another. Right. So what would be a story from, if, if you both are willing to share something personal, uh, from your personal experience, either in your own life, in your own lived um, walk, or maybe it's in someone you've worked with and the work you're doing, but what would be an experience that really drives this home? So I want to take this big picture and really help people to understand it. In terms of what people can do? No, an experience of why we even need to do something in the oh, first why place. We even need to do something yeah. At all. Like when you, let's, 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 go into yeah. this morning when you woke up and saw the news this morning what is what what happened in your mind both of you what goes on in your body what are you thinking about you know what i'm saying or, or what is an experience you've had um where you none of these systems were in place for you perhaps yeah or someone you love does, yeah, that, does that make sense one of the first stories that comes to mind uh, is actually through the work of my mom. So I had mentioned her. Her name is Catherine Hall Trujillo. And back when I was in high school, she started a nonprofit organization called The Birthing Project. Now it's Birthing Project USA. And she herself had been a teen mom uh, escaping a violent marriage, um, as a young black woman and, uh, and essentially overcame a lot of odds to get a master's in public health and to go on and be a health administrator and a whole lot of other wonderful things in her life. 
So she started this uh, nonprofit organization that would essentially support other young women, primarily Black women, who really have, that are facing a lot of odds. I mean, in this country, you're twice, two to three times as likely to lose your baby before the age of one if you're Black. Um, And that unfortunately has very little to do um, even with your income or your marital status or your level of education. We have so much racism baked into this country um, that that's one of the areas where it shows up is dead babies. And so she wanted to do something about that and started this organization that essentially um, paired up young pregnant women um, with other women in the community uh, who would kind of take them under their wing like a little sister and just provide them with support to get through their pregnancy, emotional, moral support, help them get to their doctor's appointments and that kind of thing. And in fact, Judah's grandfather uh, was the one man who helped to start um, all of this work when it got kicked off way back. And uh, it was 1988, I think, was when this work got kicked off. And so um, the story that came to mind for me when you were asking, Jen, was um, of a young woman that uh, I was sister friending through this project. So she was pregnant and she had this wonderful, beautiful baby. And I remember her telling me, and so she was living, you know, with her mother, like in a one bedroom place. They didn't have much money at all. They were kind of, you know, sharing their resources together. They didn't even have a crib or a bassinet for the baby. They didn't have room for it, quite honestly, right? So the baby was like sleeping in the bed with her. um, And I think that what had happened was that the baby had actually rolled out of the bed and she was concerned that maybe something had happened to the baby, you know, that maybe she hit her head or something like that. And she just wanted to make sure that the baby was okay. She wanted to get the baby checked out and she didn't have a car. And so she takes the baby by multiple buses to get across town to go to the doctor's office. You know, she's all of like 19 years old and she um, she gets to the doctor's office and she has to wait for a very long time to even be able to see the doctor. And when she gets in to see the doctor, the baby is really frenetic. And it turns out the baby is really frenetic because she's a breastfed baby, because she's been sort of taught, you know, you should really breastfeed your baby. This is the best thing for your baby. So she's a breastfed baby. But she had something going on, I believe, with an inverted nipple, and she needed to use a special uh, like silicone nipple in order to be able to breastfeed her baby, and she had left it at home. So she couldn't feed her baby. Her baby was frenetic because she was so hungry, and, um, and she's trying to talk to the doctor you know, about, can you take a look at my baby, see if she's okay? The doctor essentially chastises her on a number of counts. And she winds up, you know, before even really getting any kind of attention that she needs, having to take the baby back across town uh, on the buses to so that she can get home and to be able to feed her. Right. CPS gets called because the baby has like fallen out of the bed, although this young woman is trying to like do the right thing. 
make sure that everything is okay with the, you know, you can see this whole thing happening, right? Oh, yeah. I can barely talk about it without getting so upset, although this was probably a good eight or nine years ago. Yeah. Um, Because you can see that like everything is stacked up against you, right? Like if you don't have the job, you know, you're not making the resources. We know that Black women are completely underpaid. Um, you know, you don't have the housing. We know how much gentrification there is. So you don't have the space. You don't have the resources. You don't have the car. You don't have the respect from the medical professionals. You don't have people who look like you or who have walked in your shoes who are part of the medical profession. And so they're going to have certain assumptions, right? So the whole picture that that is, right? So this is the kind of thing that drives me to do the work that I do. Because I look at like every step of this and say, I don't want another young woman to have to go through this. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think that the, 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 the key, particularly for people who are, um, you know, maybe not as aware of these kind of really big uh, systemic um, ways that inequity shows up is to really kind of look at your space and see who's there. Mm. And, and and begin to dig into what is their experience there. Um, I uh, my my day job. I'm a I'm an equity uh, builder at night. Uh, but 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 during the daytime, um, I, I work in a church, and um, we had a student who um, he would sit in the back uh, of our services. I work with young adults, uh, so 18 to 25, and he would put his headphones on and throughout the whole service and and people felt like it was just so disrespectful and just so rude and so kind of all of these things, um, having no idea uh, that his um, cognitive wiring, um, one, made music really, really intense for him. Mm. And if you go to any kind of mainstream evangelical church, yeah, 45 minutes of it is this really loud music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I realized that in our space, there were actually a lot of people who had different cognitive wiring. And so one of the things that uh, we implemented was tactile worship opportunities. Um, so we brought in paint, we brought in uh, uh, um, clay, uh, we brought in journals, we brought in all of these things that people could do and headphones so that if during the musical portion of a service, if that is not the way that you most easily tap in, uh, there are other things and other ways for you to participate. Um, And so that's what it looks like to build equity on Mm. the micro level. Uh, That is not going to shift the justice system. It is not going to fix our healthcare system, but it does mean that at least one student can come into a space and be able to have a dignified experience in that right. space That's right. um, and have access to the things that everybody else has access to. Yeah. And so we are always uh, in, in the church that I work at, we're always looking for who's here and what do they need. And I think it really speaks to the importance um, of relationships uh, and of leaning into relationships with people who are very different than you. Uh, because what we often find is people are very surprised Tamu, people are going to hear that story and be blown away. I had no idea that sort of thing happened. Mm-hmm. Even the, the small detail about the inverted nipple. Right. Right. And so where do you get 
a silicone? How do what do you do? And if you don't have that particular circumstance, um, you may not be aware that there is inequity somewhere in the system. And so I think uh, it's helpful to take every opportunity that you have to learn about people. I love that you emphasize story. What's your story? What's your experience? What's your life like? And then to see how can I um, help uh, create a dignified experience uh, for somebody who's different than me. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, I can only speak for myself. The only way I have shifted my perspective is by learning about hearing someone else's story. I mean, I can think of the pivot I've made on so many fundamental levels and they were always as a result of listening to someone's story, getting to know them as a human being, not just putting them in a box with their group, right? But understanding them and getting to know them. And then I went, oh, because suddenly um, you look at your own behaviors, your own mindset, and then you have a face in front of you that you can draw upon or th remember and go, oh, this is exactly how that impacts that person. Does, right. that, does that make right. sense? Like oh, for it me, it was, does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I can remember, um, it was being at a reunion and talking to a guy that, um, I didn't know in high school. And somehow we got on the subject of he and his partner. He was a gay man who had been married to his husband for 20 years. And we went to the same high school and, and we, somehow we got on the subject of, um, their marriage or something. And, oh, that's what it was. He was talking about um, prayer and God and how he had just prayed and prayed and asked and begged, take this away from me. I don't, I don't want, mm -hmm. I don't want to be this. This is not what I, you know, I don't want. And he, and he said, I finally just accepted it. It wasn't going away. And, um, and, and I wanted to, I, I just wanted to love and be loved. And I mean, it was such a simple conversation, but it was so deep. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, I really made a broad sweeping generalization with, with anyone at the time. And this was many years ago who was gay and that, that they simply, you know, oh, they, they chose this and it's as simple as me choosing mm -hmm. whatever. Right. And I just didn't understand. And until I had that kind of conversation, I remember making a shift. It shifted how I view a lot of things um, with regard to um, equity and equal rights for the gay community, as mm -hmm. an example. But it wouldn't have happened if I didn't hear that person's story, right. see what he was feeling in his eyes, kind of resonating with the prayer for something to be taken away from you. Um, you know what I'm saying? I it, do. And imagine, yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> there's so much to say about that. Imagine if he had somehow... Um, tried to make himself something that he wasn't and could he have had this 20 or 25 year long beautiful relationship that he had been in uh probably not right and so uh thank god that he was true to himself 
But this idea of being able to just connect with someone who's different than you and to hear them and see them, we have all kinds of research about how that changes things. You know, that it is very, very hard to for your implicit biases to take root against another group when you have strong personal relationships in that group. You know, Judah mentioned how he and I have been very close for many, many years. And, um, you know, so when I see, you can't see him, you know, here, he's a big guy, right? And so he's very intimidating to a lot of people because he's a black man and he's a big guy, right? When I see other big black guys, I think about Judah. And I'm like, oh, that's like my nephew right there. You know, like that's someone that I have a positive response to, right? Whereas other folks may have a negative response. And so that's the thing, like you create these interpersonal relationships with people and it, and you rewire essentially your sensibilities. Which is, I think, powerful because it's, again, it's a really accessible first step. Yeah. For anybody who says, hey, I I want to help build an equitable world and I don't have, you know, a master's in this or a PhD and I don't have. One of the first things that you can do is say, how can I diversify my deep relationships? That's how can right. I really get to know people? And what you find is that the people who are really, really committed uh, to this work, and particularly when it's work for somebody who maybe um, is in a people group that maybe you don't identify uh, with, um, it's because they have those relationships uh, in, in that group. I also think it's it's important to, you, you said, um, Jen, you, you talked about um, not putting people in boxes. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, a term that we use a lot that's intersectionality, mm-hmm. um, which talks about like how people are m- multiple things mm-hmm. and how we want to pay attention to all of who they are, to mm-hmm. all of the things that they are. You know, we can talk about the gender wage gap. But we also need to have a conversation about how that gender age, uh, that wage gap widens if you're an older woman versus if you are a younger woman. Right. We need to talk about how that gender wage gap widens if you are a, a, an indigenous woman versus a white woman. We need to talk about how that gender gap wages if you are a woman who doesn't present um, as, as feminine or right. as feminine as people um, would like you to present how that right. gender wage gap widens. And, and so I think that it's not just about saying, oh, I need to go get black friends or I need to go get gay friends or I need to go get whatever, but about saying, I need to look at each person and try to lean in as much as I can to who they are and what their experience is and let that grow um, my education about them as a person and then my compassion for them and then to figure out, hey, how can I show up for you? Yes. I mean, that's it. The compassion, that's really what it comes down to is leaning in, listening deeply. And we use a phrase in my women speak circles that you listen so deeply for someone that they cannot help but blossom in your presence. Mm -hmm. And I love that that. so much. Mm. And, and, 
And so I think it's, I think the call to action in a lot of ways is listening more deeply to the stories around us, not the sound bites, not the, the, the perfectly curated stories we see on social, which half of which are not authentic. Right. Right. But it's, it's, it's listening deeply to the human beings around us and just uh, create and creating more opportunities or seeking more opportunities to be around human beings. And, but you're right. I mean, that is a weird thing. Like I remember when I started this podcast and I, I said, you know, here I'm this, I gave my whole description and demographic and I said, um, uh, so you're going to be hearing from a lot of people who don't look or uh, like me or present like me. And then wouldn't you know it, <laughs> Y'all, if you looked at my whole first um, five months of podcast episodes, they're all white women. What the heck? And I and it really was my heart. And I'm talking with my friend Valerie Alexander, and we were talking about um, I don't remember what we were talking about at the time. And then I said that I said, Valerie, here's the problem, and I think I need to call this out right now. She goes, Let me guess. All of your guests so far, including me, are white women. And I said, Yes. But it's like, how do you, you know what I mean? How do you, and then you don't, you don't call someone and go, Hey, I want you to be on my podcast because you're black. Uh I don't want you to be on my podcast because you're right. I mean, it's like, so part of what's so indelicate. Like part of what you're calling out is our segregated society. Right. And so you, I, maybe, I don't know, but like many other people, live in a neighborhood where a lot of people look like you, worship in a place where a lot of people look like you, you know, are in a profession and a work environment where many people look like you, went to a school, you know, um, or many schools leading up to your ultimate graduation um, with other people who are a lot like you. And so, you know, that is the the legacy that we have around uh, segregation and, you know, racial segregation in our country. And so, um, and we would like to think that it's getting better. Unfortunately, in a lot of places, it's actually getting worse. Um, and so that is our reality is that we have to actively move past those spaces, you know, like we have to actively make decisions about where we're going to live and where we're going to, you know, Uh, worship and where we're going to shop and where we're going to recreate and all of that, because otherwise the default will be to put us in constant contact with people who are a whole lot like us. And then on the macro level, right? Like the, the, the other thing is that we want to make sure that the systems that we all participate in um, also are forced to, to lean into that activity too. And so we think about things like redlining where, where mm-hmm. districts are divided up kind of by uh, race and, and economic status. When we think about school districts and, and where, where uh, funding is going, right. what districts funding is going to on the, on the bigger level, that is why we have to, to do those things. And so I, I don't, I, I, I think that there actually is some value in, in, in saying, Hey, I'm going to intentionally go and, and build with people who are different than me right. and then just not reduce them only to the right. one difference that's the loudest for you. Right. Right. To say, I'm going to, that maybe that's our baseline. Like I'm going to start with, you know, I don't know a whole lot of Vietnamese people. I want to go and, and build some relationship and then 
hold a lot of space for that particular Vietnamese person and all the things that they are. And then also make our, um, you know, our, our political and social decisions based on wanting to, to contribute to that kind of a world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it does feel like you want to go create this, but then you, you, I'm picturing it literally on a practical level. I'm yeah. thinking about even a, a, a women's connection event I'm creating right now. And it's like, it's super white. And so you think, well, I, I want, to, I would really love to have more women of color here, yeah. but then you don't want to go, oh, you're my token woman yeah. of color. So I can attract more women of color. I mean, I just have to call it out because I struggle yeah. with it. And so Absolutely. I know I'm not the only one. So it's like how, yeah, it just feels, I feel so disingenuous and I know what I really want and what I want to create, but yet I feel totally disingenuous and I don't know how to get the ball rolling. And then I also know there's people who've been turned off to, let's say, come to something that I've hosted because it's all like it attracted all white people. Sure. Do I mean? It's like, yes, Yes. it's so hard. Yep. This is actually one of the topics that we're kind of taking on with one of our clients right now um, that supports um, transracial adoption, right? And so when you have primarily white families who have adopted kids of color and are kind of in the situation that you're talking about, Jen, right? Of, you know, we want to have more expansive communities for our kids, but that's not really our communities. And so how do we go about doing that? And so there for sure is not an easy answer um, to it, but it does start with those building those genuine relationships. And a lot of that is putting yourself in the places where you can build the genuine relationships. You know, like I, I specifically choose to live in a neighborhood Um that's a little rough around the edges. And I really like it, right? Because it means that there are a whole lot of different folks in my neighborhood. There are two 20-year-olds literally living out of their car at the end of my block who are like coming to my house to shower and then I'm bringing them my leftovers, you know, but it's like my kid is meeting them and our puppies are playing together and whatever. But it's like, that's the neighborhood that I choose to live in. Yes. Right? Right. I also think that there is, um, I think that for people who are trying to step into this space, a part of it is, uh, I think that there's some head bumping along the way, right? And so we often try to encourage our clients to to have amnesty, right? It's one of our guidelines, right? Where we say, listen, you, you need to hold kindness for yourself and for others while you're on this journey of trying to figure it out and understand that like anybody who's good at something, they sucked at it first. Yeah. And that's right. really important. <laughs> I also think in terms of not wanting to lean into tokenism, that's really about power, right? And so even thinking about your specific um, circumstance to not say, hey, I want to create this thing and invite somebody different in, but to say, I want to invite somebody to help create the thing, right? Uh, I Like I, I told you earlier, I stepped into a workspace that was predominantly uh, white. Um, and one of the very first conversations that I had is that, hey, I can't be on the brochure 
and not not be making decisions, right? right? And so one of the reasons that I can be in that space, even though I'm a minority in that space, is because I know that my voice holds a lot of weight and power, decision-making power. Yeah. And so I think that that's a part of how you approach it is like, yeah. hey, I'm not making this and, and bringing it to you and asking you to, to sign off on it. I'm saying, let's talk about what we can make. That's absolutely yeah. right. That is so right. And one of the things, I love that, Judah. And one of the things that I'm also also thinking about is like community organizing 101 is about actually providing service before asking for anything, right? And so very often those relationships come about because you're sitting on committees or you are joining the board of a nonprofit organization or, you know, whatever it may be so that, you know, you are saying, oh, is there a need here that I can help to fill? Is there a skill set that I can bring to be supportive of what it is that you're doing? And the answer may be no, which is, you know, then you just have to, you know, with grace say, okay, thank you very much. But the answer may be, yes, we would absolutely love for you to be able to bring your skills around podcasting to help support our, you know, the best program in Oak Park or whatever it may be, right? And then you build those genuine relationships and it becomes a lot more authentic then when you say, hey, I've been volunteering with your organization for the last six months and I do have this podcast. Do you want to come and be a part of it? Do you want to come and get interviewed? Right? Yes. Um, so that's, yes. that's a part of it too. Yes, please. No, I, I love that you're both, you're equipping us, honestly, you're equipping everyone listening to this to go, okay, I can do that. Or Absolutely. Oh, I could see myself doing that. Okay. You know, it, it, it can be done and it, it, it's just, it's so important. We don't want to keep, um, it, it, it I, looking at headlines and looking at things that occur and then just again, Oh, wringing our hands and thoughts and prayers and, and all of these things that just feel so empty. Like it needs to, it needs to be more. It needs to be more. And that just made it really accessible and, and possible. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break and um, and when we come back, we'll wrap up. Okay. We'll be right back. So Judah, I, I want to just ask you a direct question and get your take on this. And it's, it's this, what does building a world where all people are free and safe look like to you? Or what does community healing feel like, practically speaking? And, 
And would you just expand on that? What do we do to initiate and support that? Yeah. Well, one of the things is for me, um, the idea of equity building is deeply theological. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, um, I'm, I'm a follower of, uh, of Christ. And so for me, it begins by looking at who was this historical person, Jesus, right? Like not, not the blonde hair, blue eyed guy on the back of, of the church fans, but <laughs> like who, who was he and what did he do? right? As my roadmap for how to build equity. And so when we look at Jesus, we see him knocking down systems of oppression. We see him engaging with everybody from the tax collector to, to the, the ethnic woman that he, you know, culturally wasn't supposed to speak to, to folks who were unclean, to folks who had health issues like leprosy and going and, and, and building relationship with them. And then also leveraging his power, uh, not just, um, supernatural power in, in terms of we see him healing, but also as a rabbi, as a respected person in his community as a man, as somebody who's kind of at the, the top of the social totem pole, mm. um, to bring them into dignified lives. Um, and I think that uh, for me, it, it the, the, the biblical narrative um, really speaks to um, the type of world that is supposed to exist, where we see uh, humanity being tied together, intrinsically linked together. If you look at the creation story in Genesis, we see this first human creature created, and then we see God breathe his breath into that creature. And that's what makes the creature alive, right? That, that's mm -hmm. what the, the text says. So that shifts how I engage with each person that I meet because they're a container for the breath of God. How dare I mistreat mm. you? How dare I uh, stand by and, and let a system mistreat you? Mm. And then we see in Genesis him create the second creature uh, that has got distinction from the first creature. So it's not the same, but it is equal and mm. it is equal in value and in power, even if the function of that creature changes, is, is, is different from the first creature. And we see that those two are tied together, which speaks to a, a worldview that says, I am not disconnected from you, even if you're a different color than me, you vote different, you're in a different tax bracket, even if you behave in ways that I don't agree with, I am not disconnected from you uh, based on my theology. And so the way I show up for you and show up for the things that are important to you and show up for your needs is really grounded in that. And so I think um, that, that building a world that's equitable starts off by diversifying your relationships on purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, leaning into those relationships and then uh, learning about uh, what do people need and then also what do I need? And I'm going to ask for what I need uh, because I'm also a container of the breath of God. And I am going to, to hold space for you to also ask for what you need because you are a container containing the breath of God, which means that your intrinsic value is unmerited, right? The Christian Bible says uh, that, that humanity is God's masterpiece. Mm. That means after he created the entire ocean and all of the things in it, which is beautiful and powerful, I love the ocean, that then he made us 
and said, you are my best creation. You are the the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And so I adopt that lens and I let that inform the ways that I show up uh, in the world. Mm. Yes to that. Yes. Yes to that. And and I, I, I'm so happy you, as someone who has spent a lot of time in a variety of houses of faith, um, that hasn't always been my experience. Mm-hmm. And it certainly hasn't been the experience of the marginalized, the undesirables. Mm-hmm. Jesus hung with the undesirables of right. his time, right? Right. Right. And uh, and I use that with air quotes, mm-hmm. of course. And so that is it is so refreshing and encouraging to me to hear that as possible, not only possible, but absolutely worthy of pursuit and yes to all of it. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. Tammy, what are you thinking? Well, I'm so grateful that Judah wanted to come and work with me at yeah, the Wellness are. Institute. I'll yeah, tell you, you that. Are. I think he's, you know, a perfect oh. person to to do the work mm-hmm. um, because, as you see, he has so much um, heart in doing it. That is actually one of the things that um, that I wanted in creating the institute was to provide a space for the next generation of folks to do this work, to kind of get their start, you know, to be able to um, bring their passion and their energy um, and to see how that looks in the world with clients where you actually need to make a profit doing this work, right? We're not a nonprofit organization. Uh, And so what kind of value essentially can you provide to a client that is a nonprofit institution, a nonprofit organization or a government institution or a corporation or a faith-based organization or whatever it may be, you know, to be able to recognize that there is going to be um, an improved workspace for them and improved outcomes for everything that they're trying to do if they go through this really difficult journey, you know, which is a soul searching journey, which really is about having to get clean and get honest with a lot of things that we um, do a very good job of not really talking about in our society, you know, that, um, yeah, that I think most people would rather not have conversations about. And when the conversations do surface, feel a lot of um, defensiveness, right? And so that's one of the things that we want to do is, as Judah said, around amnesty. I love that. Right? It's that, look, I've been doing this work for so many years, for decades now. And I wake up every single day, like, what am I going to learn today? Right. Because I I know that I have things to learn today Um, and I know that I'm going to make mistakes and I need to also model the way for other folks um, that that is the process. You wake up with good intention. It's not enough, but it's a great start. So you wake up with good intention. Um, I know that the world needs to change. I know that we can do better as a people. I know that I have a place in it and 
I am going to do what you're always talking about, Jen. I'm going to listen more than mm. I talk, mm. right? I'm going to take in as much as I can um, and help to put these pieces together um, to help out other folks and other organizations. Um, but that recognition that we're always, always learning, um, I think is really important because you probably have a lot of pe people listening out there saying, I don't even know where to start. You know, yeah. like this is so awkward and uncomfortable for me. Um, and when I do try to have these conversations with other people, maybe I get shut down or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm just not even sure what to do with that. So I guess I would offer up some of the resources, some of the things that I've gone to yes. um, that have helped me over the years. I'll yeah. make sure that it goes in the show notes. There Thank is you. an Perfect. implicit bias series that was done by UCLA that's online. It's a series of mini lessons on implicit bias um, that are fantastic. I weave a lot of them into the trainings that I do. And so I would say that is a great place to start. You don't even have to read anything. Just watch a few short videos and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and understand how your brain works when it comes to implicit bias and what you can do about it. Um, if you've read anything by Malcolm Gladwell, you know that it's like butter. You know, you can pour through one of his books in an evening without even know, knowing um, where the time went. Um, Blink is... I was just uh, going to say, wasn't he Blink? Yeah. Blink yeah, yeah. is amazing. The power of thinking without thinking. So mm -hmm. again, if you want to know, you know, some more about implicit bias, I think that that's a great one. Um, if you want, if you're, <laughs> if you're nerdy and you're really into the science and you want to understand about race and how we've created this thing, race, fatal yeah. invention, Ooh, um, okay. by Dorothy Roberts is fantastic. It's how science politics and big business recreate race in the 21st century. So that's one of my favorites. Okay. Um, there are a couple others that just are really um, like, I feel like people should just pick them up and really at any age, you can pick them up and learn so much. They're mm -hmm. stamped, right? Yeah. Um, and this is Racism, Anti-Racism and You by Jason Reynolds and Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, who I just got to see at the Mandavi Center at UC Davis about a month or so ago, and it was amazing, right? Um, my son read Stamped in school. He's 15. I think he read it a year or two ago and got so much out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and just a couple more that I pulled off of my shelf as we were talking. I love How to it. be less stupid about race by Dr. Crystal M. Fleming. I mean, <laughs> come on. How do you not want to read that book? That's right. I and love that so awesome. much. It's so good. And you'll laugh while you're yeah. reading it also, but you'll also be really humbled, right? I like love that. So much. Um, one of the best chapters is uh, listen to Black women. Mm. I would say go to that chapter first. Listen to Black women. There's so much wisdom. In fact, I'm going to read you this one little quote here. She says, as far as I'm concerned, one of the very best reasons to listen to Black women is because doing so will better equip you to understand the complexity of oppression and what we can do to challenge it. 
listening to Black women and girls is vitally important because those of us who pay attention to the condition of our lives are aware that we're marginalized by multiple forces of discrimination. The hard-won knowledge we gain from reflecting on our experiences of oppression holds valuable insights for anyone interested in building a more just society. Uh, so this one I love. And you, the last one that I would recommend is Black Futures, which was edited by Kimberly Drew and Jenna Wortham. And what I love about Black Futures is um, that it, of course, takes us through so much of the hurt and the pain of our history, but it allows us to see the joy and the vibrancy and the creativity and the resilience that gives us the hope um, to do this work and to do it in solidarity uh, between our communities. So those are my parting words for you around resources, and I'll make sure that's, that they all that, wind up in the show notes as well for you. perfect lead into my last question. I started to think, what is the enemy to all of this? What's the enemy to this work, to progress in this regard? Is it certainty? Is it the need for certainty? Is it, a, what is it, do you guys think, is the enemy of this work that gets in the way of it? So that if we're aware of that, we can hopefully notice it in ourselves, root it out and get to work, right? I think one of the things that's really important or one of the things I think is a barrier um, is that we become really beholden to an image of self um, and kind of this idea of how how we want to be seen and perceived and how we see ourselves and perceive ourselves, which can get in the way of doing a, an accurate assessment of where you are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you can hold who you are with a bit of a loose hand, um, that makes space for me to say, Ooh, I don't like that in me. And I want to, I, I need to do some work in it as opposed to saying, no, I'm this thing that's perfect and clean and pretty and, and exactly how I want to be perceived. And then we stay kind of in the not so healthy way uh, of being. And so I, I would say to just hold, let's hold ourselves like loosely mm. um, and, and say, you know what? I am not actually today who I want to be. Mm. And I hope every morning when I wake up, I'm able to look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm not who I want to be. So that when I walk out of my bathroom, I can do my work to become who I actually want to be, the kind of person I want to be. Oh, I, I love that. What do you think, Tamu? What do you think is the, the enemy of making progress here? Well, I was thinking something similar. I, you're so eloquent, Judah. I don't know if I, I know it quite like that. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about how many people I've spoken with over the years who have said things like, I don't have a racist bone in my body, or I definitely don't have any of this implicit bias that everyone else seems to have, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, that the more, um, you know, the more that you think that you're on the right path, the more you need to really examine that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so it's really, and and the research has proven has proven that that the yeah. people who think that they um, are least biased tend to be most biased. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 
So what we really need is um, a big serving of humble pie mm-hmm. um, each and every day that it's like you get up every day and you start all over again with, yes, exactly what Judah was saying. I'm not exactly the person that I want to be, but I am willing to lean into that and to try my best today. Mm, that's right. And does that mean that I need to you know, engage with folks that I haven't listened to before or to listen to a podcast or read a book or you know, watch a documentary or yeah. what is it that I need to do so that yeah. I can broaden my horizons today? Yeah. Oh, thank you. I thank you both so much. Y'all, please, in the show notes, everything you need, everything we talked about, um, connect and um, delve in because this is, and, and, and have conversations like this. Really, it's okay. You, this is amnesty always is what I wrote down with a heart around it. Amnesty always, grace always. Like, let's just give each other a lot of room and a lot of grace and stumble over it and at least keep having the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you both so much. I really value you. I value who you are. I value your work and your time. And I'm just thankful to call you my friends. Oh. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. And for the platform to be able to discuss this with everyone. Mm, always, always. Thank you, Judah. Thank you, Tamu. Bye. 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 Right, bye. We'll see you all next week. I'm so thrilled you are here. Thanks for joining us. Listen for Real is produced in Rockland, California and is edited and mixed with the help of Mark Edward. Our music, entitled Zero, is written and performed by Shannon Curtis. If you believe conversations like these belong in the world, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And even better, share it with someone else as a real conversation starter. We'll see you next time.